Um, I, I, I get to be the elder that oversees women's ministry at um, Grace Bible Church, and so I get to sit with um, you know Chris and Jamie and Suzanne and Maggie and Linda and, and just listen to what they come up with. And um, I, I don't think there's one stone that has not been overturned and looked at by these ladies who are leading, and um, it, they're a big encouragement to me. And um, also, just the fact that they are their character is uh, super encouraging. And these are godly women who love the Lord and who are very approachable. And so, at any time you have any questions, feel free to just seek these ladies out and um, ask them any question on your mind. Um, they would love to to answer your questions and care for you. So, thank you for coming. I feel like we're a little spread out here. That's okay. Um, it's all good. We'll leave it just like it is, and I'll, I'll just project. I'm going to move quickly today. Just so you know, this is going to be fire hose stuff. It's going to come out all at once. It's going to get all over the place. You're not going to be able to drink it all in, um, but we're going to just move through a lot of material, and um, you can take time to go back and listen more and um, think on what we're talking about here today. And as Jamie said, what we really want to try to accomplish today is... Um, the goal is we want you to see where Wellspring fits within what Grace Bible Church is and does. And so that's what I'm here for. After today, your other Thursdays, you won't see any guys in here for quite a while, is my guess, right? Until Tom comes or Smed or somebody, Jacob, anyway. But uh, before we dig in, you can get your, you can get your uh, worksheet out uh, where you've got some spot there to take notes. You can get your Bibles and get those ready because we're going to be turning to a lot of different places. And as we do that, we should pray. And you'll find this out if you don't know this already. Uh, anytime we have the Word of God open, the first thing we want to do is we want to pray because we know that we need help in seeing what God's Word says. And we want to be in a humble place before God's Word. We want God's Word to speak over our lives. We're not coming to set the Word under us where we could all, you know, put our opinion in on top of what the word says we want it to speak we want its meaning to come out to us so let's pray let's ask god to meet with us that's to be a worshipful time together as we look at his word will you pray with me father in heaven thanks so much for this day thank you for these ladies thank you for um, those who would be new and stepping into something new lord that always takes courage anyway and i pray lord that today would be a a blessing to them and and that uh, new relationships would form this year and um, good friendships would be um, founded through their time together here, Lord. I pray for their kids, for those little ones, and all of the teachers over there, Lord, that they would, that the teachers would love the kids well this morning, and that the kids would really enjoy their time, and that truth would penetrate their little hearts as well. Um, Lord, they need a Savior as much as we do, and we're so grateful that you love children, and that you uh, call them to yourself, and that you even protected children from um, the, the wrong thinking of, of your own disciples. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that um, it, the whole morning from kids, wellspring, all the way into here, Lord, that, that our hearts would be impacted by your word and by your presence with us, by your spirit. And so, God, we draw near to you now with our Bibles open. And we draw near to you because we want to meet with you through your words. And so would you please uh, meet with us. We humble ourselves under you. We express our love for you, our our desire for you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are talking about the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church. If you notice on our uh, bulletin, you'll see it every Sunday. It's at the top. 
Um, we have a statement that says a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. And um, there are three different like little uh, triads or two, one triad for each of those. Um, the biblical vision of God has its own little triad where we uh, look at the glory of God in the cross of Christ in the transformation of life by the Spirit. And you'll notice that that's Trinitarian. We're thinking about God the Father, God the Son at the cross, and God the Spirit in the transformation of life that comes to us as Christians, as believers. And then our gospel purpose in Christ has its own little triad also, drawing in, building up, and sending out. And so that's what we're going to go over this morning. I'm going to run through that with you, and then we'll talk about where Wellspring fits in. We'll also talk a little bit about what how Build fits into that, which is for um, the guys at the church, your husbands, and... Um, and whatnot. So let's talk first about a biblical vision of God. What do we mean when we say a biblical vision of God? I'm going to take each of those words briefly and just walk through it. But I'm going to start with the word God at the end. Um, this is all about God. And it's about, as I said, the, the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. If we interact with the Bible and if we interact together as a church, but we miss God, the God of the Word and the God of the church, then we've really fallen short. Um, we don't want to miss God in anything that we um, are aiming at as a church. And what do we mean by the word vision? Um, just what that kind of word brings to your mind. We, we want to think of sight and seeing. Um, we want to see God and we want to set our sights on him. And the best way for us to do that is through scripture. Um, we want to see him um, by the word of God. And then we want to be able to turn and look out into our world and see the world as God sees the world. So uh, this is, in one sense, a looking glass that we look into so that we can see God. But then we also want to wear it like it's glasses and look out into our world through the Word of God so that we see the world as God sees the world. We want to see ourselves as God sees us. So vision is a good word. It, it thinks about sight. We're setting our gaze upon Him and we want to see things as He does. Biblical I hope it makes sense to you as well. I've been holding the Bible up back and forth here. The, the vision of God that we have comes only through Scripture, not through any dreams or anything else that anybody has ever had. Uh, you don't want to know about my dreams. They're weird. And they're not going to benefit you or bless anybody. They do not even bless me. So we see God by the Scriptures, and that's what we're looking at. It's a biblical vision of God. So now let's break that down into the triad, and let's talk about the glory of God first, and then we'll talk about the cross of Christ, and then we'll talk about transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. The glory of God. This is where we would locate God the Father, but we're not trying to say that the Son doesn't have glory and the Spirit of God doesn't have glory, but we're locating the glory of God, at least for this discussion, in God the Father. What does glory mean? Uh, I encourage you, I, I encourage this every year. I don't know if any of you have ever done it, if, if this is not your first time in, in uh, Wellspring, but when you read through your Bible, um, as you're just doing your Bible reading, I encourage you to look for the word glory and circle it or underline it or highlight it or keep it in a journal and just watch how the Bible uses the word glory and watch how often the word glory is, is there. What, does God, what is God's glory in the Bible? It's His weightiness. It's His weightiness. It's His worth. It's His splendor. It's His impressiveness. A word that I like to use is it's his overwhelmingness. God just is overwhelming in that sense that he's heavy. He's weighty. That's basically the Old Testament idea with the word glory. But it comes also, his glory comes through 
brilliant radiance or light. So whenever you, oftentimes when you're, you, you come across his glory, and you'll even see this in Exodus 33, God is weighty, he is majestic, he is impressive, he is overwhelming, and there is radiant, bright light emanating from him that is weighty and overwhelming and impressive. So it is God's weightiness that is expressed through brilliant radiance or light. There, there's a sense in which God's glory is the, that which he uses to communicate himself. Um, God communicates himself through words, right? God communicated himself through Jesus, the word becoming flesh. But another way that God often communicates himself is through his glory. Um, it's some way for him to reveal himself to man without man perishing. Because John 1.18 says, um, John said, no one has seen God at any time. And lived. Exodus 33:20. God Himself said, "No man can see Me and live." But God did communicate Himself to men at different times in a weighty, impressive, brilliant, radiant light. They thought they were going to die, but they didn't. And God revealed Himself to them and spoke to them. So Moses was dropped to his knees by that glory. That glory of God made Moses glow. And when he came down the mountain, he didn't even realize he was glowing. And they saw it. And Israel freaked out on him. And he put a veil over his face so that they were more calmed down. So let's take a look at a passage about God's glory. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. Probably one of the, the two highlight peak passages of God's glory. Uh, You you remember what happened here in Exodus 33. Just before that, Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. He's been getting the law from God, and God has been giving him all kinds of instructions about what the tent would look like and how he should put it together and how Israel should conduct themselves. And they start wondering, well, is this guy ever coming back? Let's, Let's make a calf. And let's worship that calf. And so the whole golden calf thing happens in Exodus 32, and it's horrible. By the time you get to the end of Exodus 32, God has said, um, I'm not going with you anymore. I've brought you out of Egypt. Um, I've got you to this mountain, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel with you. That's what he says. Verse 34 of chapter 32. Go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so now then chapter 33 starts and Moses is distraught. I... I've only come this far, God, because you've been with me. You met with me. You told me you'd be with me. And now you want me to go on without you and lead these people. I don't even know who's going to come with us. You said it's an angel, but I don't know who it is. Then we can drop down to, uh, oh, where should we pick this up? Let's pick it up at verse, let's pick it up at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. If you're not going with me, I need to know what you're like. I need to know what your ways are because I have to lead these people. He goes on. And consider that this nation is your people. You want me to lead these people. You won't go with them, but they're your people, God. Verse 14, God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. 
Then he said to Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? I mean, what makes Israel different from all the other nations? Were they smarter? Were they better? Were they bigger? Were they more godly than the rest of the nations? No, they were just like all the other nations. What made them different was God. And and Moses knows that. Moses has seen their rebellion. It's just like the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the everybody elseites. Okay, they're just like them. But what makes them different is Yahweh. And so Moses is pleading with him, saying, "If you don't go with us, what good is this?" The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing, verse 17, which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your weightiness. Show me how heavy you are, how overwhelming you are. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But you can't see my face, for no man can see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and when it will come about when, uh, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not uh, my face shall not be seen amazing god somehow is locating himself geographically by a spot and he says there's a spot over here by me i'll put you in the crack in the cliff wall and i'll cover you with my hand as i walk by if you saw me full on as i am you would perish but as i leave i will pull my hand away and you'll be able to see the trail of what i am in my glory as i pass by in all of my goodness And so Moses hungered for the glory of God. So there's a great Old Testament passage. Probably the other one in the Old Testament that stands out the most in regards to the glory of God is Isaiah 6. Remember when Smed taught that a few weeks ago? Um, The radiant glory of God in the temple that uh, Isaiah saw um, was overwhelming. New Testament teaching about the glory of God is found in John 1 in regards to Jesus. John 1.14 is about Jesus' glory. We beheld his glory. Uh, chapter 12, verse 37 to 41, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Um, in Luke chapter 9, um, the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, um, you remember Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain. They fall asleep. Jesus is transformed. He's talking with Moses and Elijah, and his face is radiant light, and his clothes are whiter than any uh, whiteness or brightness that a launderer on earth could do. And uh, they're overwhelmed by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus has future glory that is coming in regards to judgment and when he separates out the peoples for judgment. Now, if you, could, if you wanted to pair some of these passages together, you can take Exodus 33, which is Moses on the mountain, what we just looked at. And a New Testament parallel with that is Luke 9, 28 to 36. You could put those two together because you've got the glory of God on a mountain with Moses. And in the New Testament, you've got the same glory with Moses, but Elijah's there also in the disciples, and it's Jesus. So you've got glory on a mountain, glory on a mountain. An Old Testament prophet is there. Old Testament prophet is there. Those kind of go together in themes. You can also put together as pairs Isaiah 6 and John 12, verses 37 to 41, where Isaiah saw the glory of God and was overwhelmed and thought he should perish. 
And yet what John tells us in John 12 is that indeed was Jesus that Isaiah saw. So from cover to cover, you can read through and find God's glory everywhere. But, but from the left part of your Bible all the way to the right part of your Bible, the central theme really of Scripture is the glory of God. Even above the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ exists to what? Glorify God. And God is about magnifying the greatness of his name um, everywhere that he can. Um, Practically speaking, what does that mean for you? It's great. We want to set our sights on the glory of God. What does that mean for you? What difference should that make when you open up your Bible and you're at home and throughout your day? Here's practically speaking. Do this. Position yourself daily before the word of God to drink in the glory of God. Because the way that you're going to see his radiant, impressive glory today is through this book. So position yourself on a daily basis to come before it and drink in this glory of God. Um, We are a doing kind of people. Just tell me what to do, right? That's what we want. And, And the way that we think of glory is glorifying God. We want to glorify God. That's something that we do. And that's the right thing for us to do. But think about this. What impact on your ability to glorify God will there be if first you just drink in the glory of God? The weighty, radiant, impressive splendor of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Spirit. You just drink in their triune glory. What kind of fuel does that become for you as you step out into your day to glorify Him? So don't go out with an empty tank. To glorify God with your life, in your kids' lives, in your husband's life, in your roommates, whoever you, wherever God has you. Fill up your tank first with the glory of God. Position yourself to see the glory of God in Scripture. Let's talk next about the cross of Christ. Um, how is Christ's death related to the glory of God? Well, let me give you a, a kind of a quick Old Testament lesson back where we were, even in Exodus. The glory of God in Scripture is inseparably tied to blood shed by an innocent substitute. Did you know that? That's your story in the Pentateuch. That's the story of the Bible all throughout the Old Testament. Now think about this in the Old Testament. God, in all of His glory back in Exodus had led Israel out from their captivity and he led them to a mountain. As they got to the mountain, God's glory came down upon the mountain. Clouds were enveloping the mountain, thunder and lightning. And, and, and the word came out from God, don't let Israel go near this mountain. If they touch it, they'll die. Don't even let the animals come near it. And so God's glory, his radiant, impressive glory is enveloping and swallowing a mountain. And the mountain is trembling, it's quaking under the radiant glory of God in that tent, or in that mountain. God calls Moses up to that mountain and he says to him, here are all of my laws as the whole thing is shaking. And then he says this profound thing. He says, build me a tent. That God, in all of his radiant impressiveness, who is shaking a mountain, says, make me a tent. Put my tent in the middle of all of your tents, and that's where I'm going to dwell. Do you think Moses scratched his head? I mean, the mountain is, is being overwhelmed by your presence, and you want a tent. And you want your tent, that tent, with all of your radiant, impressive glory in the midst of all of our tents? And that is exactly what God wanted to do. And then the instruction came to Moses that everywhere in that tent, day after day, month after month, year after year, 
there would be blood everywhere. And not the blood of the Israelites, but the blood of a substitute. And not just any kind of substitute, but an innocent substitute. An animal that was innocent. And that innocent substitute would have to give its life for the sake of the worshiper of Yahweh. And so you see, God's glory is inseparable from the blood that is shed by an, um, by an innocent substitute. Now, we know, uh, because we have all the rest of our Bible, and you can turn to Hebrews chapter 9, we know what the story is, right? We know that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin at all. But all of those innocent animal substitutes before were looking forward to the ultimate, better, final sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice, which was actually God himself in the flesh. Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, and let's start back up at verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Uh, that's back in the mountain. Uh, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all of the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So, again, blood being thrown all over inside the tent to inaugurate the covenant. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. uh, But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in other words, the tent is a copy of what is really going on in heaven. And to set apart that copy on earth, blood had to go everywhere. For Christ did not enter a holy place, verse 24, made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he actually entered into the real thing. He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once... At the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed or manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. So you see here, here is the ultimate sacrifice being uh, shedding his blood um, so that we might... Um, have our sins taken away from God's side. This means that you can't talk about the glory of God in the Bible for very long without getting to what subject? The cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus for sinners. And it works the other way. If you're talking about the cross, the cross, the cross, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, what subject do you also need to get to pretty quickly? How this brings glory to God. Okay, so the glory of God in the cross of Jesus. Now, let let me give you two things of what we're not saying. We're not interested merely in a cross. We're not interested in Roman crosses as an execution instrument. We're not interested in a Christless cross, right? The second thing we're not trying to say here is we're not trying to diminish the empty tomb or the resurrection. So we're not interested just in crosses. It matters who's on that cross. In fact, that's what makes the cross... Different, and that's what our whole focus on is the Christ of the cross. And we're not trying to diminish the resurrection as if that doesn't matter. What we're recognizing here in Scripture is what God tied to his glory was the blood shed of an innocent substitute. 
The Old Testament type of this is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, right? Leviticus 16. New Testament teaching on this is Hebrews 9, which we just kind of walked through. Let me give you a key theological phrase that will help you with understanding the cross of Christ and what we're after. Are you ready? I'm going to give you three words in a theological phrase. Here it is. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. So like the word penalty, but just take off the T and the Y and leave penal. Like you're penalized, right? Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Okay? Um, That's a great way to summarize the gospel. A penalty must be paid. The penalty of sin demands that the penalty be paid. Um, but that penalty penalty cannot be paid by just anybody. It has to be. It can't be paid by you. It has to be paid by what? A substitute, not just any kind of substitute, an innocent substitute, and not just an animal innocent substitute, but actually God Himself, the only innocent one. That one substitutes Himself in, pays the penalty for the purpose of what? Third word, atoning for your sin, um, making you be able to be reconciled to God. Um, key words that go along with this theologically are expiation, your sin taken away from God's sight, propitiation, God's wrath satisfied towards you, um, reconciliation, um, your friendship now, you now have friendship with God, um, and so forth. Redemption, a price was paid to get you out of the slave market of sin so that you can be free in Christ, etc. So penal substitutionary atonement. It's a great way to think of the gospel. If you ever are concerned, like, I, what, 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 would I, what do I share right now? Just remember those three words. Uh, there's a penalty that can't be paid by you. It has to be paid by a substitute. His name is Jesus. And it's also that you would have forgiveness of sin. There's your outline. And just talk as much as you know about the Bible on those three things. And you will share a very good gospel presentation with people. Okay? So practically speaking, what, what should you be doing with this? Um, on a daily basis, um, bring yourself before the Bible and drink in uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Drink in the fact that Christ is your innocent substitute in your pay- place, paying your penalty in order to uh, provide atonement for you. And it is okay, in fact, this has to happen, that you would just, in of, a, of that, like Paul says in Galatians 6, that you would just boast in that, that you would just... Praise God for what he did. Um, Meditating on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did there doesn't mean you have to necessarily go do something first. You should just, the first thing you should do is just worship. Just bring yourself to a place where you just stop and worship and, and rejoice in what God has done for you. And then, yes, will it impact the way that you view your children, your husband? Um, your, your co-workers, whatever, yes, it will transform you. But position yourself daily just to drink it all in. And that leads us then to the third part of the triad, the Holy Spirit part, and that's transformation of life by the Spirit. Uh, this is the role of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what His role primarily is, according to Scripture? His role primarily is to take the work of Jesus Christ and apply it to the life of a sinner. That's his primary work. Is that what you hear people talking about? Christians talking about when they talk about the Spirit of God? His primary role is to apply the work of Christ on the cross to the life of the one that God is saving. And when that takes place, a massive salvation occurs. Think about it. That kind of a God with that kind of a glory, that kind of a weighty impressiveness and radiant splendor, 
And that kind of God, the Son, who would shed his blood, when the third member of the Trinity picks up all of that truth and says, I'm going to bring it to a sinner, what kind of an impact should that make on a sinner? Do you think that sinner would go, you know what? I like the idea that I don't have to go to hell anymore, but I'm going to still live however I want. Does that sound like what the Spirit of God would want to do with the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ in a life? No, when, when that kind of God of that kind of weighty, impressive splendor takes that kind of an innocent substitute's blood and the spirit of holiness grabs all of that and applies it to a life, that person changes. That person changes from the inside out, upside down to upside right. Everything gets turned upside down and turned upside right that needs to be. This is a massive salvation that takes place. It's much more than fire insurance. Um, this is a great big salvation that is in the Bible. The Spirit, Ephesians 1, is the pledge of our inheritance. Uh, he's the down payment. We, if you want to be sure that what you're going to get, that the Bible says you're going to get, is what you're actually going to get, you know what? God gave a down payment. Do you know what the down payment was? It was Himself in the Spirit. I mean, think of that. Let me assure you that you're going to have everything that I promised you. I'll give you me. <laughs> That's what God has done. It's amazing. Um, and he is the one who continues to ongoing, in an ongoing fashion, transform us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 3. I encourage you to take and, and read all of chapter 3 because it will help you understand the difference between the new covenant ministry of the Spirit and the old covenant um, under Moses. But let's just look back down at um, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. So he's playing off of the themes with Moses, right, in the Old Testament, who had a veil and who got to see the glory of God. We are being transformed. There's our tra idea of transformation. We're being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to another level of glory to another level of glory. That's the idea of the phrase there. And that is just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Where does the transformation, the ongoing transformation of life in the life of a believer, where does it come from? Who accomplishes it? The Lord, who is the Spirit. So this is what we want to focus on as a church, is what the Bible says the Spirit of God does. There's lots of talk out there among Christians about who the Spirit is and what He does and what His primary role is and how He works in your life. But where's this kind of talk? And, and this isn't something new that elders make up. This is the Bible. Where's the talk amongst us about how the Spirit of God is changing me? Changing you? Being transformed from one level of radiant glory to another in Christ? Where's that conversation going on? Let's have those conversations together. Let's put those in front of us. We want to, again, set our sights on these kinds of things. The glory of God and the cross of Christ for the transformation of life that the Spirit brings. Um, let me help you understand the difference between two things here that are very important in this, regeneration and progressive sanctification. When the sinner is birthed into new life before God, that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's being born again. You must be born by the Spirit. Um, uh, Jesus spoke of, of that in regards to uh, his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Um, so the Spirit does this birth into new life, and that is an event. That is a one-time moment event, being born again. But then 
there comes a long process that follows on the heels of the new birth. New birth event takes place and then, uh, and you call that regeneration. You've been regenerated. Titus 3, we'll look at that in a moment. That's regeneration. As soon as regeneration is achieved and the event is over, now a lifelong process begins. And this is the work of the Spirit also. It's called sanctification or progressive sanctification. Uh, You cannot progressively be sanctified into the next level of glory apart from the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit's work in your life. But um, how many of you who have had children remember your children helping themselves get born? You remember that when they were helping you? You you don't remember that? It's stupid, right? That's what I do. I point out the stupid so that it makes uh, even more stupid sense. But you don't help yourself to get born again. There's one set of fingerprints on the birth of a child, and it's the parent. And that's God's work in, in regenerating us. One set of fingerprints. Now, your child growing. How many sets of fingerprints on your child growing? Yours still all over that child. But you start asking the child to participate and to grow and to listen and to take up the instruction and the, the, the convictions and the, and, the, and the commands of mom and dad. So the same is true in the Bible. There's one set of fingerprints on our regeneration. It's the spirit. But when you get to progressive sanctification, now there's two sets of fingerprints, the spirits and yours. Very important to understand that. Uh, distortions come theologically when you overemphasize one to the diminishment of the other, whichever way you go. If you make progressive sanctification an event, which it's not, you come up with all kinds of errors. You, you let go and you let God, and He's the one who does it all, and I don't even have to. I'll just become godly, and I guess I'll just discover this as the days go on. I'll just be this. Or do it the other way around, that somehow you're helping yourself to get the life that you must have with God, and now you've got work salvation. So you can't switch them around. You can't overemphasize one to the diminishment of another. There's all kinds of Old Testament revelation and anticipation of this in the Old Testament. Uh, there's Old Testament evidence that he ha- he's a transforming spirit. Do you remember the kind of the weird story about King Saul where the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was with the prophets? And it says that he became another man. That's 1 Samuel 10, 6, where it says, Then the Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you mightily, King Saul. Well, he's not king yet. And you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Isn't that interesting that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God comes upon the prophets and Saul looks different. That's an anticipation of the kind of changed life that we're going to see as the Bible continues to unfold. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are about the promise of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant that God will make one day with the house of Israel and Judah, of which we as Gentiles get to benefit from now in the church. Ezekiel 37, dead bones are laying all in a field, in a valley, and and they are brought to life. And that was the the illustration of the the hope that the Spirit of God would come to these dead Israelites and raise them up into newness of life. There's New Testament teaching, which is still kind of Old Testament teaching. John 3, where John is, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is with Nicodemus. And he says, wait a minute, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know that you have to be born again? In other words, what's Jesus saying about the way that saints have been saved all in the Old Testament? They're all born again by the Spirit of God. Um, The Spirit's work of regenerating is an Old Testament idea. It's, It's never been not there. It's always been that way. But what has changed? Let me show you an example of how how there has been a change. Look at John chapter 14. These are Jesus' words. 
concerning the Spirit of God. So this is his last night with his disciples, John 14, verse 16. And he says, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you another helper, and he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. He says to his disciples, you know him. They know the Spirit. And why do they know him? Because presently, right now, before I've gone to the cross and before any sacrifice has been made by me, presently, right now, you know him because he abides with you. There's Old Testament teaching regarding how the Spirit of God interacted with believers in the Old Testament. The Spirit was there abiding with them, causing regeneration, John 3, but then abiding with them somehow, having his Holy Spirit shaping influence upon them. But then notice what Jesus says. And, future tense, he will be what? What's it say in verse 17? He will be what? Look down. What does it say? Verse 17. He abides with you and will what? Be in you. So there's where it's different. Now with the new covenant ministry of the, of, of the Spirit of God, now there's actually indwelling in a way that there wasn't in the Old Testament. Was he with them? Was the Spirit of God helping believers in the Old Testament? Yes, he was abiding with them. I don't know exactly how what that is and how that's completely distinguished, but it is a distinction that Jesus makes. And so the new, co- new covenant ministry of the Spirit is indwelling. You can look at Titus 3, 3 to 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are new creatures. Romans 8 is excellent about it living by the Spirit. And in living by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the body. Um, there's sanctification going on right there, um, and so forth. Galatians 3 Verses 3 to 6, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Look, you, you don't get into the Christian life by the Spirit of God and say, Thanks, Spirit, uh, just drop me off here. I'll get out and I'll make it the rest of the way now. Just give me your commands and I'll be A-OK on my own. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is, Spirit of God, I, I need you today, right now. Transform me into the next image uh, of, of the glory that I must be in. I have to change and I cannot do it without you. Practically speaking, what does this mean? Same thing. Daily position yourself to see your need for the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit of God today, ladies. I do. Um, Express to God in prayer every day your need for Him, your desire for Him, for Him to come and fill you. And now why would He want to fill you? So that you can have power to change. So that you can become a, a more godly woman. So that you can become a more obedient to Jesus kind of believer. Um, certainly his gifting of Christians gets a lot of airtime among Christians today. But, but what about his primary foundational work of causing us to be born again and then changing us on a, on a daily basis? That doesn't get the airtime. But it's in the Bible. And it's the primary emphasis on what he does. So plead for fullness of spirit every day for a continual transformation. Give thanks to God for his spirit. So there's our biblical vision of God. We want to set our sights on God the Father in all of his glory. God the Son as he pours himself out as a substitute to pay the penalty so we can have our sins atoned for. And we want to set our sights on the spirit of God who helps us to change. Right Now, that does not leave us sitting there doing nothing. That's a very worshipful gazing on Scripture to see the God of the Scripture. But that does not leave us inactive. And that takes us to the second point, our gospel purpose in Christ. 
Uh, Jesus in the Gospels appeared to have three primary overlapping complementary activities for his disciples. They were very busy with these things. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. Do you see the difference? The second part here, the second set of triads, that's our action. And the first part is really our worship. We're looking at God, looking at what He's like, gazing on Him, putting our sights on Him, and just responding to what He is. And now let's get to work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Drawing in, building up, and sending out. Let me talk about drawing in here. I'm going to give you two statements about drawing in. Here's the first one. You've got a blank to fill in on both of these. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work, right? Drawing in is what God does. He is the best at this. He's the only one to do this. John 6, 44 says, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how many people came to Jesus ever since for 2,000 years? How many came to him who weren't drawn to him by God? None. Everyone who came to him are the ones that God drew to him. Verse 65 of the same chapter And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father above. Again, one set of fingerprints on the drawing in part. Now, drawing in, what we mean by that is actually salvation drawing in. Um, We're not talking about drawing people in in attendance to a program or an event, a worship service or your workplace Bible study or your neighborhood Bible study or whatever. But we're talking about being savingly drawn in to Christ through faith in the gospel. And so we're not satisfied when women or children come to whatever it is that we do and they're attending. We're glad that they come and they attend. But what are we really after? We weren't after just getting them to come in and fill seats. Right? What are we after? What's God after? We're after drawing them in in a saving way. In a saving way. Uh, if an unbeliever participates in some kind of a program or outreach thing we do, we are thrilled that they are there, but we must labor in the gospel until they are what? Saved. Uh, second statement to flesh this out, Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. There's the blank to fill in, unique. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. Now, that's the only thing that has power. Jesus Christ crucified, that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 16. That is the only thing that has power. So what do you lift up? What should you lift up in your evangelism? If what you think has power that's going to be helpful in their life to get them to warm up to Christianity, if you think the thing that has power is you developing friendship with them, then you'll set that up between you and the sinner and you'll try to step onto their platform, get them to step onto some midway point because in your mind that has power and that will be what draws them in. There's just one problem with that. Friendship is powerless. I didn't say it's not important, but it is powerless. If what you think is going to win them and draw them in is your friendship, you put your power in the wrong place, into a place that doesn't have power, according to Scripture. John 12, Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, Christ crucified is the power of God. Verses 22 to 24 of 1 Corinthians 1. Um, Paul was determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except what? Except what? Christ and Him crucified. There's the power. That's the power. It's the only thing that has power. Now, so then what sense does friendship take place? 
Is it, should we be friends with sinners at all? Of course. But that, let that be a platform for the power to get upon. Develop a friendship so that Christ crucified becomes the platform of your friendship. Because here's the problem. I've seen this. I watched this. I, I was even guilty of this in student ministries when I did this years ago. I would befriend a kid. I would hang out with the kid. I would want to do everything that the kid liked. Whatever his musical interests were, that's what I wanted to know. At what, what movies do you like? I want to see those movies too. I'm just going to hang out with you and hang out with you. And the kid loves it. And I feel good because they're drawn in. To what? See, I, I don't know what he's drawn to. But here's what, all I do know. He's drawn to my friendship. But I don't know if he's drawn to Jesus because I haven't put Christ crucified in the middle of it. So you have to be really careful about how you use things. And I think it's the, in terms of practically speaking on this, put between you and sinners what has power. Put between you and sinners what has power. And there's only one thing that has power, and that's Christ crucified. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't invite them to church. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with them. Yes, do all of those things, but make sure that what's in the middle of it all? Christ crucified, because that's where the power is, right? Practically speaking. I I like to ask myself this question just to remind myself. What does the Holy Spirit love to use to draw in sinners to salvation? What does the Spirit of God love to use? Well, what does He love to use according to Scripture? Penal substitutionary atonement. He loves to grab that and use that. And by the way, here's Parenting 101. Here's Parenting 101. You can, you can have a child that you just... It, it, anytime you know that you have to cross his little will, it's going to be rough. And so you can begin to think, um, if I can get him to just like mommy, then, it's, then, then that, I'll, this will be better. And so now you just win little you know, Johnny over to... Um, your friendship, and you've developed a sweet little friendship with him, but you have not put power before him. Maybe, like you need to. Put power before those little ones. Um, in, the, in, the, in the simplest way possible, as you get down on your knees on their eye level, in the three seconds of attention span that you have, Jesus died for us to change us. You must change, my son. I love you, but you've got to change. Love Jesus. Repent. Turn whatever you got to say to the little guy, okay? Put power before him because whatever the Spirit of God uses to transform a life is what you need to put in front of sinners. And it's Parenting 101. Um, how about building up? Building up is the second overlapping complementary activity. Um, Jesus was constantly building up his disciples. Uh, let me just give you a challenge. Let's look at a verse. I'm going to try to go a little faster here. Make sure that you write down or that you, uh, if I've got it there in your notes, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. I'll just look at verse 16 with you briefly for a moment so you can see um, how building up needs to be an idea that's probably a little bigger in our minds than it is. Um, Paul says in verse 16, from whom, that's Jesus in verse 15, from Jesus, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. And that works according to the proper working of each individual part. That causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Um, what I want you to notice and think about in your building up is that um, we tend to think of it in a very individualistic thing that I need to be built up. 
Um, and that's what God's goal is for me, is that I would get built up. I would be edified. I would, I would grow. I would, I would be constructed in Christ. Is that true? Absolutely. Is that everything? No. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a true statement, but it's an incomplete true statement. It needs more truth with it. What's the other truth that must go with it? Um, what is God's concern? The whole body causes the growth of the body. That's the main idea of verse 16. So what is God after in a local church? The body causes the body to grow. Now, where do you fit in that individually? You're an individual part that must work rightly. And your part needs to come up against another part. And then there's a joint of supply. There's a connection between the two of you. And there's where power is in holding everything together. And the body grows. So here's the point. Edification or being built up in the New Testament is not merely an individualistic thing where you just have got to grow. We're just going to focus on you growing and you growing and you growing and you growing. We're looking at you growing because the body must grow. Do you understand? So what does that mean for you? It means your life, your individual life must come into connection with others in the body. You must be connected with others in the body. And this is where I just want to encourage you to, you know, make your move towards finding small group connection. Any way that I could help you or any of the elders or Jamie or Chris or Suzanne could help you uh, find a small group or anybody here. Look, what you shall be doing is like, um, hey, are you in a small group yet? You're not. Come to my small group. Come to our small group. You need to be in our small group. It's the best. We have the best cookies. We have whatever it is that you can bribe them with. Get them to come there. Cookies don't have power. Christ crucified has power. The cookies have their place and are helpful. So anyway, just get them to come. That's where you want your life to be connected, okay? So as you think about you growing, yes, you think about you growing. Because can your husband make you grow in Christ? Does he do the growth for you? Do your parents do the growth for you? No. Do your kids make you grow? No. Only you make you grow as you cooperate with the Spirit of God in your life. But your life must be connected to others, and your life must be connected. So, finally, sending out the third activity. Now, think about this. When God is out drawing in sinners to himself, he's often doing that through disciples that he what? Sent out. So, is drawing and, how are drawing in and sending out related? They're like two sides of the same coin. Drawing in is the way that God sees it. And we view it as we were sent out with the gospel. Somebody sent was sent into your life for whatever reason they felt that they needed to come. And when God saved you, you found out that he drew you in. So sending out and drawing in are the same activity. And here's the crazy thing. You know what Jesus did oftentimes to build up his disciples? He sent them out. So these are not like sequential things that you, you know, Drawing in happens, and then you do building up, and then once you're all done build, being built up, and you graduate and got your built-up diploma, then you go as a sent one. No, a lot of times your building up process comes by trying to live as a sent one where God has you, right? And that's the way that these things overlap together. And it's also important to keep all three together because you can diminish one or two at the overemphasis of the other one or two. 
Now, let me give you four statements to help flesh out this whole sending out process here. First, God has always been a sending God. If you, if you look, I encourage you, one of the other words to look for that's fun as you um, read through your Bible is the word sent, or send, or sending, or sends, or whatever. Um, now, you're going to find a lot of those usages that are not very um, helpful, like uh, David's father sent him to the front lines with cheese to give to his brothers. I'm not saying that there's something profound in that necessarily, but watch for where God says to Moses, I sent you. I am sending you. Watch where he says to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, um, where Isaiah says, send me. When the triune Godhead in Isaiah 6 says, whom shall we send? Um, Look for those kinds of statements. Look for where God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, um, I am sending you. Uh, Ezekiel, I send you. When it talks about John the Baptist in the New Testament being sent. Watch everywhere that God tells you something about God. What kind of a God is the God of the Bible? He is a sending God. He's always been this way from the very beginning. Second statement. Jesus Christ was sent by his sending father. Read through the Gospel of John and circle the word send or sent every time you see it. It occurs over 50 times in 21 chapters. I said 22 on Saturday when I taught this. Um, 21 chapters, 50 times. I wonder what he's trying to say about Jesus. I wonder what Jesus is trying to get across, that he was sent by the Father who is ascending God. Uh, Third statement, the Holy Spirit was sent too. In John 14, verse 26, it says, Jesus said, the Father will send him in my name. In John 15, 26, Jesus then says, whom I will send to you from the Father. Um, And then chapter 16, verse 7, I will send him to you. So the Father and the Son send the Spirit. So let me get this straight. God the Father, always been ascending God. Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, sent by the Father. And then we find out that the third member of the Godhead is sent by the second and the first member of the Godhead. So, sending God sent one and another sent one. This is a sending God. Look at that. I wonder what on earth that kind of sending God will do to me when he saves me. I wonder what I'll be. I wonder what my identity will be when the identity of that God as a sending God converges in my life by his son's cross and his spirit's power to save me. I wonder what I'll become. What do you think ascending God will make me into and you into? A sent one. You'll be a sent one. How could you not be? How could we not be? Why would he save us and not be concerned to send us? The disciples of Jesus and the body of Christ are sent ones as well. Jesus told his disciples this in John 4.38, I sent you in John 17.18 as he's praying for them. He says to the Father, as you, Father, sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. After his resurrection in John 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, I now send you. Matthew 9, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest. And guess who went out in chapter 10? So here are the disciples. They probably stopped. Lord, send more workers. And Jesus says, okay, you guys are going um, there and you guys are going to go there. And like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was praying for sinners. I had no idea it was going to be me. Exactly the point. Um, when you get to the book of Acts, uh, you don't see the word sent as much. But what you see is the word witnesses. Testify. Um, that's what sent ones do. They testify. So, practically speaking, what does this mean? This is your identity. This is one of your identities. You are in Christ. You are a beloved child. These are all identity kinds of statements you can make about yourself, but you can't forget this one, that you are a sent one. You are. 
There are no sent ones anymore in heaven. There's no sending to go do. The whole reason we're here is because God still needs sent ones behind enemy lines with the gospel, offering a pardon to enemies of God before God comes back and crushes them in judgment. So he sends you. Remember your identity. If you need to tell yourself that every day, put it on a note card, tape it on your oldest child's forehead so you can see it every day. I am a sent one. Um, Remind yourself, I'm sent. And you know what? That doesn't mean that you have to go to the other side of the world with the three other families who are going to go to Papua New Guinea and then you'll finally be a sent one. No, be a sent one where God has you with your little ones in your home, with your your not-so-little ones anymore who uh, made you stay up late last night studying for a health test. Um, Well, it happened last night. Be a sent one with your your kids wherever you are. Um, Live there. You know, that's the greatest evangelism program ever. If, if the elders could come up with an evangelistic program that was like, okay, you know what? I could, I, here's, let me be silly. Let me say something stupid again, okay? Imagine the elders sitting around going, you know what? If we could only come up with a way that the, the ladies of our church would be in the same place for six days a week. And they primarily see the same people over and over, like in their home or at work. Or in the neighborhood, if, if if we could just have them there over and over for six days, then they would they'd have these natural connections. If we could program that, that would be the best evangelistic outreach that we could ever. Well, guess what? We don't have to plan that because what? Isn't that what God already did? So before, and, and not to to say that we shouldn't do evangelistic programs and outreach, we should. But what if you do all those other things? What if you do all kinds of outreach, but we don't actually live as sent ones where God already has us? We feel good about our outreach that we've done. We can attach ourselves vicariously to what the group of outreach people are doing over there. And yeah, we're all about the gospel. We love that. Now we can do that and we should do that. But if we're not going to live as sent ones where we are, that's hypocrisy. So take advantage. Exploit God's program for you, for evangelism, where he has you. Never see your children as, oh, I just wish I could really have some ministry to do. Um, I know you don't see them think that way. But, man, what a, what a precious... If your life, at the end of your life, is measured by the fact that, that there was one kid in your house who has changed forever, praise God. Be faithful. Be faithful to where God has you. So, as we wrap up this gospel purpose section, um, it is gospel purpose, gospel purpose. Now think about this. Drawing in. What is drawing in without the gospel? Nothing. Being built up, what if you're, how do you get built up without the power of God in the gospel in your life? You don't. And what is sending out if you go out and you feed hungry people and you give them clean drinking water, but you don't um, have the gospel? What kind of sending out is that? It's not the sending out of the Bible. Not trying to say don't feed people, not saying don't give them clean water. Do, give, them, give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, but preach the gospel. These are gospel centered things that we do. Um, So we want to set our sights on those. Set our sights on the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, the transformed life that the Spirit of God gives, and that should make us be very active in the drawing in, building up, and sending out ministry, the gospel ministry of Jesus. Okay, That's what this church is all about. Now, next page. What on earth does Build and Wellspring have to do with any of this? How do Build and Wellspring fit within this vision? Uh, Really, Wellspring kind of stands in in several places in that. Number one, Wellspring will introduce you to the idea that, you know what, Um, I need to gaze upon this God in Scripture more often. 
That's what Wellspring is going to help you to do. It's going to help you to open your Bible and say, God, I need to set my sights on you. And now my little ones are waking up. I can hear them crying and I need to go get them. Now help me to look at them as you look at them through your word. I want to see my world where I'm at through your word. I want to gaze upon you. Wellspring sits there. Wellspring also sits in the the building up process. Um, one of the best ministries that we have to build one another up is, is Wellspring. And you get to do it uniquely together as women. Uh, this does not replace small group. This does not replace um, um, being uh, serving in, in like children's ministry or serving in the worship ministry or someplace else like that. We need you and want you to do that also. But Wellspring will help fortify your small group involvement because you'll be thinking about the right kinds of things of how to care for others as you step into their life. Uh, it'll strengthen your service that you offer within the body too. So where does Wellspring fit? It, it's, it's like everywhere in multi-layers throughout here in the vision and the purpose of the church. Um, second question, how do build and Wellspring build up the believing men and the women of Grace Bible Church? There are three basic or kind of foundational core spiritual disciplines within Wellspring and within build as well for the men. They're foundational. Um, I'm going to describe them first to you. So those of you who know these three and you've studied them and thought about this, and this is your umpteenth time taking Wellspring or maybe your fourth time because it's only been around four years. The guys thing has been around for about ten. So... Um, let me describe them to you without the title so that maybe you might think of them a little differently and then I'll give you the titles for these disciplines. The first discipline is all about how you, as a believer, worshipfully pursue God through His Word. The first discipline is about how you, as a believer, worshipfully pursue God through the Word, through His Bible. Your interaction with the Bible must be nothing short of worship. That's, that's so important. Your interaction with the Bible must be nothing short of worship. It needs to be an expression of love for Jesus. and It needs to be an expression of your need for Jesus. It needs to be uh, come from your desire to know Jesus Christ better. And by the way, this is a discipline. It's a discipline. It takes discipline to ensure that worship is taking place when your Bible is open. How many times have you had your Bible open? I, I was. This is. I'll, I'll just be candid with you about yesterday morning. I, I got up and I was. I was praying and I was reading my Bible. And as I'm praying and I'm even praying through some passages of Scripture, my mind is constantly. It is like it is just flying away to things that are on my mind for the week and for the day. And it's just constantly... And, and I'm having to labor so hard just to grab myself and pull myself back. Listen, it doesn't just happen. Nobody just wakes up and finds themselves. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was getting ready. And the next thing I know, I was just worshipfully reading the Bible. It was, it was awesome, God. Thank you. That's called... If that ever happens to you, you've just died and been in heaven, okay? Because it doesn't happen here. You have to actually discipline yourself to do this. You must control yourself to do this, to ensure that worship is taking place. It's not safe to just simply assume because you're a Christian, because you have a Bible, and because your Bible is open that this is taking place. Discipline yourself to make sure it's taking place. And that's what Wellspring is really ultimately all about. If that is the only thing you get out of the next nine months, mission accomplished. As an elder, mission accomplished. Praise God that when your Bible's open, you control yourself to think, this is worship. I must worship you. I need to love you more. This, let this be an expression of love for you, Jesus. Okay? So that's foundational to your being built up in Christ. What would it be like to be built up in Christ but not interact in a worshipful manner with God when the Bible's open? 
What kind of building up is that? Who wants that? Right? Um, you've left your first love. Um, second core spiritual discipline within Build and Wellspring is then purposefully impacting your household relationships first as one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. So you, the first place of impact is the household relationships. You love the Word of God and you love the Word of God because it brings you into contact with the God of the Word and now the first place of impact is where? Household. Household relationships. Becoming a, a woman who thirsts for God in and through His Word should impact the ones that you live with first. They should feel the impact of your worshipful pursuit of God through His Word before anybody else does. Your little ones need to feel that. Your husband needs to feel that. Are you a daughter who's still living at home? You're young enough that you could be at home. Your siblings and your parents, they need to catch the, the aroma of your worship of God in Jesus Christ. Um, they need to get that. Um, change the way you view your household and, and change the way that you see the souls of those that you live with. Uh, see them as souls that you must impact first um, for Jesus' sake. It would be hypocritical, wouldn't it, to show little to no care for people that you live with all the while you're trying to make a big impact on people outside your household. Um, and we know this. One of the greatest problems in the local church is the devastating uh, spiritual game of leapfrog. Right, that men and women play over their household relationships. Right, you see this primarily with pastors and elders that um, they're so busy out in ministry, caring for so many other people, but they have not been caring well for their own heart, and they haven't been caring well for the people in their home. And the next thing you know, his life explodes in ministry, and everybody's left to pick up the pieces. And then everybody wonders what on earth was happening in his household. What we know, what was happening? N- nothing that was supposed to be happening. So we're, we're, we're emphasizing, and by the way, this is a discipline. You have to discipline yourself to think about your household relationships. I, do you have, whoever, I've got 30 thoughts running through my head. Um, junior high boys start to get an idea that the dumbest, and junior high girls too, start to get the idea that the dumbest people in the world are the ones that are in their house, and all the smart people are outside their house. Right? Who taught him that? Did you ever sit down and say, look, I just want you to understand that the dumb people in this neighborhood live in this house. And this, did, you t- did you teach him that? Where did that idea come from? That comes from just the flesh, and that's just sin. You don't have to teach them that. They will just come to that conclusion. So um, imagine a junior high kid, 12, 13, 10 years later, never confronting that wrong thinking. And now she's 22, 23, and she's living with roommates. And she's convinced that she's living with the dumbest people that she's ever been with. And who are these? I call these my friends? And then she gets married at 25, 26. Um, and after the honeymoon is all worn off, she's like, oh my goodness, I, I married another dumb one in my house. I, where did this happen? Um, look, that, that kind of thinking will just be there and you have to confront it and you have to discipline yourself to think rightly. No, I, I'm, that's not even the right way to view it. That's a wrong view of sin. I'm concerned about everybody else's shortcomings, but not my own. Um, I'm as much a part of the problem as, as they are. Uh, that's what happens when you put sinners together in one house. It's tough. Um, I'm going to discipline myself to care well for my own heart and impact my household relationships with my heart for God, with the Word of God. 
the third core spiritual discipline in Wellspring makes sense, then now you're ready to step out into ministry, into the lives of other people in the church and outside the church, right? Um, think about it. Um, if you are caring well for your own heart and you're in the, the you're, you're disciplining yourself, it's not perfect, but you're disciplining yourself to take care of household relationships well um, in your home. When you step into the life of somebody in the church who's hurting and you start to care for them and they get close to your life and they see what you're like, what do they discover? A life of integrity. That when you are with your family, you're concerned for the, the, the greatness of God in your family, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you are all by yourself with your Bible open, that's who you are. So you want a life of integrity to fortify your ministry to other women in the church and children and other people that you come across and you share the gospel with as you're outside the church. Um, you want a life of integrity. Um, so those three core spiritual disciplines are summarized with these titles. Number one, the heart, the home, and the ministry. Okay, so there's your, your spiritual disciplines. You shepherd your heart to the Word of God so that you may know the God of the Word. Then you step into your household relationships and then ministry. Third question, why does discipline one, the heart, hold such a primary place? It's all about, and I'm going to let um, the ladies, you guys are, do you start covering next week the, um, the chart and everything? Oh, great. Okay. I'm going to let the ladies... Um, tackle most of this section um, let, let's just talk briefly for a minute about the heart why do we put an emphasis on the heart what is the heart let's just start with this definition and then you can add on to it next week when you come back the heart is who you are inwardly before God in scripture the heart is who you are inwardly before God can I give you a, a good verse you can look up First Peter 3 4 you know where Peter says let it be the hidden person of the heart you see, there's a person that's hidden and it's of the heart nature. It's who you are inwardly before God. When you die and your body falls off and away, your heart continues on before God, your inner person before God. Okay? So we're trying, what we're saying in shepherd your heart to the Word of God, we're not saying, look for that piece of you that's called the heart and shepherd that peace towards God in His Word. We're saying, shepherd you to God in His Word. When we say shepherd your heart, it's a way of saying, I'm going to lead myself to the word of God. I'm going to lead and control myself. I'm going to direct myself. I'm going to shepherd who I am inwardly to God and his word. You must start with that and you must labor there. Uh, you'll spend the whole rest of the year just working on this. I'll let the ladies talk to you next week about why you have to do this now. Listen, before you were a Christian, you had no interest in shepherding your heart to the God of the word. And in heaven, you won't have any need to shepherd your heart to the God of the word anymore because you will see him as he is and you will be like him and there will just be, there's no more discipline in heaven to do it. But right now you are in this really weird mixed condition where you love Jesus and you still fight against sin and you need to control yourself and you need to direct your heart and you need to shepherd your heart. And that's what this is all about. Um, question four, what's the history behind this? I'll just tell you, we, we did build for 10 years. Uh, well, actually we did it for about six years. And then we decided we were going to add the ladies component to it that focuses primarily on Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, where um, Paul spells out for the church that there is just a wonderful, unique, awesome ministry that women have with women in the church. And we want you uh, to be able to become older women who will be able to teach the younger women how to be everything that God wants you to be in the household. 
But you must be a woman who's shepherding your heart to the Word of God, to know the God of the Word, and you need to be one who's impacting your own household. And your ministry then to one another in Titus 2 kind of fashion will be uh, amazing, God-blessed ministry. So that's where it comes from. Um, that's how Wellspring kind of fits into the whole church vision and purpose. I've got one last thing I need to talk to you about, and that is uh, the Bible reading plan. Your primary homework for Wellspring this next year will be that you would read your Bible. And um, the, l- let me give you the goal, and I'll give you the center of gravity. There's a primary goal that we're after, and then there's kind of a center of gravity, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The primary goal in Bible reading is that you are going to meet worshipfully with the God of the Word. You draw near to the Word of God so that you can worshipfully meet with the God of the Word. That's the primary goal. That's why we want you reading your Bible. And we want you reading it every day. Okay? Now, that's the primary goal. The center of gravity for that is reading through the Bible in a year. To try to get on a plan that will help you to read through the Bible in a year. Um, And that's kind of our center of gravity that we fall to. Listen, God, uh, here's what I've noticed as I've been in ministry for uh, about 20 years. Um, Christians like their their favorite five or six books of the Bible. And they kind of just keep coming back to them over and over. So they'll read, maybe they'll branch out and read one in the Old Testament. Well, that was kind of scary. I'm going to go back to James. I'm going to read that because that, I get James. James just tells me like it is. He just says, just do this and everything. I get that as, as fun and I get that. Okay, so, and what we do is we expose ourselves to the five favorite books that we have where God has revealed himself in those books and we reveal ourselves, uh, he reveals our, himself to us there. And that's great. But let me ask you this as a, by way of, a, of, an inter, uh, of an illustration. If, if you, let's say you were in the military and you got deployed to someplace on the other side of the planet. And over the course of your deployment, you wrote to your husband and to your kids ten letters. And in those ten letters, you spilled out everything about who you are over there on the other side where they can't see. You, you spilled out everything that you could think of about them so that they could, so that mommy and wife could be close. And then you get home from your deployment and you found out that they only opened three of them. Because they, were, they just loved them so much. There's these three great letters... And we just kept reading them over and over. And sometimes we read the first one over and over, and then we forgot that we actually liked the other two. And so then we read them also again and again. And but we know we never really got to these other ones. They, they looked a little thicker. They looked a little bigger. Um, didn't really know if we could handle. I mean, it, that, this sounds stupid, right? And again, this is what I'm about. I, I give you stupid illustrations to to point out to the obvious that don't do that with God's word. Second Chronicles may be something that terrifies you, but guess what God did there. He revealed himself. Do you want to miss that? The God of the Old Testament, do you know that's your that's your daddy? And did you know that your daddy saved other kids before he saved you? Do you want to know what your daddy's like with you? Watch what he was like with his kids that he had before you. Know who God is. So the center of gravity is read all of the Bible. That should be your center of gravity for the rest of your life, that you're just going to read the Bible. Now, that may be a terrifying thing to you to think about because maybe you just have never done that. And so we actually have a reading plan in your um, notebook that is kind of a craft your own. Uh, it, It could be the kind of thing where you could take the Gospel of John 
and you could break it down into 21 days of reading or you could break it into 30 days of reading. You can break it down however you want. But the point is get on a plan that helps you to be consistent where it'll help you guide yourself through that you're reading specific plan or a specific assigned reading every day. And you can choose what it is. Do it. And then it, when you're done with it, ask yourself the question, is it time for me to go read my Bible through a year now? And you may go, no, not yet. I'm going, to do it. I'm going to do it one more time, and now I'm going to read through the book of Acts, and I'm going to go through all of it. I'm going to sign out its reading. It's 28 chapters. I'll, I'll do it in, in 28 days. That's easy. I can read a chapter a day. And so for the next month, I'm going to read the book of Acts. Great. Do that. When you're done with it, come back and ask yourself, is it time that maybe I should start reading through the Bible in a year? Well, okay. I've, the last two months have gone pretty good. I'm going to start that. I'm going to give it a shot. And the main thing that you're going to be doing together in Wellspring throughout the year in your discussion groups is you're going to be encouraging each other to keep pressing on because you're going to get way behind in your Bible reading. You are. Has anybody ever done that before? I mean, uh, this is the main thing I do with the guys every year. If you, read, if you get on a read through the Bible in a year plan, you're reading about four chapters a day. Missed three days. How many chapters did you miss? Twelve. Right? That seems like impossible. When are you going to sit down and read 12 chapters of the Bible? On top of the four that you're supposed to read for the day. So now you got 16 to, to just be where you need to be. That just becomes overwhelming. So if you need some help in taking some baby steps there on the way, do that. And um, use that other reading plan. I'll let the ladies point that out to you more. Um, but the center of gravity is always coming back to is it time to start reading through the Bible in a year? That's what you want. Imagine in 10 years from now if you've read the Bible 10 times. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be great? Let me pray, and then I'll let the ladies finish up with you. Okay? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for um, how you have revealed yourself to us in it, Lord. I I need the revelation of you in your word every day uh, to see you, God, our Father, in all of your glory, Jesus, in your um, perfect work at the cross in your resurrection and now that you're seated at the right hand of your father lord i must gaze upon that and your your spirit's powerful transforming work that he does lord we each one of us needs to gaze upon you and all of your triune greatness in the word of god and then father we need to be active as those who are worshipers of you we need to be active in your son's gospel mission where we live may we participate with you as sent ones as you draw in sinners around us and may we be built up into the kind of believer that we must be and i pray lord that wellspring this year would be a tool to that end in these ladies lives bless them and bless the leadership and be with those little kids over there and the workers Um, god may this just be a great year for your name's sake and we ask it in jesus name amen well do you feel like that was fire hose a little bit All right, so we're just going to keep going because we're a little bit short on time. So my name is Jamie Siegel, and on behalf of Chris Evans, will you say hi? Almost, I mean, sure, everybody knows Chris, but and Suzanne Blevins, say hi, and the discussion group leaders. I know Emily uh, Miles is here, and then. Cass is subbing and Janet is not here. We're just thrilled um, that you're here. And we're, like I said, we're just really looking forward to seeing what the Lord um, will do. 
Um, I am going to talk about what a typical Thursday morning will look like. Um, and uh, this year is going to be a little bit different than last year. We're going to, like Scott said, we start at 9, we're over at 11, but we're going to we're going to begin our time every morning at 9 o'clock, or like Maggie said. So if you can do what you need to do with your kids and be in here at 9, we really would like to start promptly at that time. Uh, some mornings are going to begin with a time of worship, uh, singing. Other mornings we may start teaching right away, but you do have that 10-minute window to get your kids um, in their rooms and then in here and then after the teaching time we are going to break into discussion groups we'll have chairs set up and next so next week we'll get to do that and be together so when you come in or when you came in you picked up a sheet with your assigned group and if your name is not on there will you let one of us know after this morning uh, is over. So we end our time at 11, and at that time we do ask, like Maggie said too, that you just promptly go over there and and get uh, relieve those gracious servants and uh, get your children. So when you come in, please check off your attendance, collect your handouts, please wear your name tags every week. That is so helpful for all of us. There's several new faces in here, and I'm over 50. And I need, um, I don't know that I'll ever remember everyone's name, but I'll do my very best. Um, we can bring in drinks, but they need to have lids on them. And so uh, please, um, if you do spill, they have provided a special cleaner for us. So if you don't mind just letting us know, and we'll get that uh, cleaned up. And uh, we just, we are so grateful for this, uh, that God has provided this building for four years um, this is the fifth year, and it, it just accommodates us so well, and they are so gracious. And I, I spoke with the janitor this morning, and he said, and this isn't to boast in us, this is just God's grace and um, the integrity of the women that are here, but that he, they love having us here because we care well for their building. So let's do that again this year. Let's pick up what needs to be picked up. Let's wipe off the bathroom counters if we need to or whatever, and just care well, leave it better than how we found it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Wellspring, some things. I may be a little repetitive, um, cover some things that Scott did, but it is for the women of Grace Bible Church. Whether you've made Grace Bible Church your home, if you did that last week and you've committed or you've been here for years, whether you're a brand new follower of Jesus Christ or, or if you've been a believer for a really long time, it's for you. And many of the lessons in Wellspring are adapted from the Build lessons. And like Build, Wellspring is a training ministry. It helps us grow in our walk with our Savior, helps us in our understanding of how we uh, how that should impact all the others, all the other relationships in our lives, beginning in our homes and then outside of our homes, so that the church is strengthened. And many of the lessons, they build on one another. So Wellspring is a nine-month commitment, and we ask that you take it as a serious commitment. We want, you, we want to see you here at the end. Um, but it doesn't, so um, but when we talk about commitment, though, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't come back if you miss a week, if you have to miss. It doesn't mean that you can't miss um, when you're sick or when your children are sick. We know those things happen. People get sick. Our families have unexpected circumstances. Things come up. We mean that it is a commitment as much as it depends on you to be here and to be purposeful in that, to plan for it, make your appointments, uh, to accommodate that commitment. 
um, just knowing that you have to be here on Thursday morning as much as it depends on you. Um, and if you do have to miss, come back. Please come back. See, the goal is to get um, what all the Lord has for us to grow, to be equipped, to grow as a church. And that just it best happens when we're consistent in our participation here in the teaching and in the discussion time and in the assignments. So if you do have to miss, you can listen online. Um, you can you know print out the outline and the homework and then come back. Okay? So now, let's take a look at our notebooks. Let's take a look at the front. And you're going to see that the name uh, of this ministry is Wellspring. And it, it comes from Proverbs 4.23. This says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. A wellspring is the head or the source of a spring or river, and it, it signifies a continual supply. So when Proverbs 4.23 says that the heart is the wellspring of life, it's saying that all of life flows from the heart. All of life. Now, we are going to be talking a lot about the heart. Um, Scott mentioned a little bit, and next week we're going to be digging in even more, but for now, just know, here's a little a little preview. Our heart, the heart, is the totality of who we are. The inner man. We have an outer man. That's the physical part of us, like our hands and our feet and our organs, like our heart. But we're talking about, God's word is talking about the inner man, um, the heart, when he mentions the heart. And the heart is the source of our motives and our desires and our wills. Our intentions, our thoughts, our words, our attitude, our opinions, our priorities, our emotions, everything. And our life continually flows from and reveals our hearts. And our logo that you see here on the front of the notebook conveys that this continual flow of water is from an unseen source, just like everything that flows from our heart. Our logo also conveys that Wellsprings a ministry for women. It ties back to Titus 2, which we'll cover at the end of October. Um, it's the idea of one generation, see how it's going uh, from one source to another. It's one generation pouring into another generation. And what we pour into others flows from our heart, our inner man. So this logo can be a reminder to us of the responsibility we have to one another. How crucial it is that we guard our own hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else. So that what we're pouring into others is good. It's pure. It's true. It's grounded in the word of God. It's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, now let's take our notebooks and let's turn it over. And you'll hear that almost every time we're together. Turn your notebook over and we're going to look at the disciplines. Um, Scott talked about the disciplines, but he didn't really identify them like we have them here. He kind of did, but we're going to talk um, and read through them. But first, let's talk about Wellspring's purpose. We are here to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church to do something. We're here to equip and encourage one another to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with God's word, with the word of God. Why? 
so that we live gospel-transformed lives, that we live out what Christ has done in us. And what does that do? Strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. There's a lot at stake. That's a big deal. And we want to be united in our understanding of what it looks like to pursue growth in godliness, in our progressive sanctification, and how we minister to one another, and how we encourage one another, and how we disciple one another toward Christ. And we pursue uh, Wellspring's purpose through these through three uh, disciplines. These disciplines, they're a framework to help us understand what God says in his word. It's an effort to help describe um, the priorities God describes throughout his word for believers. Let's look at discipline one. Scott did cover these, but we're, we're going to talk about them uh, in detail every time we get together. Discipline one is about our heart, our inner man. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And then discipline two is uh, uh, about our home, the impact we have in our household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Those household relationships, those people that you're around the most, whether it's those that come in or those that live there. And then discipline three is about the ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she then steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We're going to hear a whole lot more about that. But now, let's take a look at the schedule. It's not in your notebook, but it, uh, you did pick it up this morning. And it looks like this. It's important to, to notice that we meet three weeks on and one week off, for the most part. We take a break in December. And um, the last time we're together is December 11th, and then we return January 15th. So um, write those dates on the calendar. Um, put the dates that you'll be serving uh, over in Wellspring Kids on your calendar. And if you can't make it, please um, notify Maggie or get someone to cover for you. Um, but it's important that you, um, we don't want you to show up here on October 9th um, when we're not here. So plan accordingly. All right, so with that, let's open up our notebooks. And the first sheet you will see is a resource with contact information. And we're, um, Suzanne Blevins is going to give her group her contact information. We missed that on here. You'll see instructions here on the bottom on how to uh, find and download the audio and the handouts. But you will be receiving an email every week, thanks to Dina Iserman, who does so much for us behind the scenes. Uh, but she, she should be sent. So if you see an email from Dina Iserman, that means she's sending you audio or she's sending you um, a note from Wellspring from some of us. Um, you have tabs in your notebook uh, for outlines, homework, and resources. Use your notebook however you want to. Rearrange it. Add more dividers. It's there to serve you. Um, but let's talk about the third tab, resources. If you don't mind turning turning there. The first page you see, is uh, it covers your Bible reading, um, some thoughts on that, and some explanation, and uh, your homework. So if you don't mind, will you just read through that this week? and um, become familiar with that 
But while we are here, will you please take out your homework? It says Grace Bible Church's uh, vision and purpose, and then on the right hand side, it's there, you'll see a place for your name. That's the homework. Two pages. Um, this year, uh, you will see the homework has several sections. May look a little different from week to week. Um, but most weeks uh, we'll have an opportunity to look back. You see the looking back section and reflect on and apply uh, the lesson that, that was just taught. And then there's a looking day by day section, which is an ongoing encouragement to persevere in meeting with God in his word. And there might be a looking ahead section with scripture in order to prepare for the upcoming lesson. And there may be a looking deeper section occasionally, digging into a particular topic, Uh, that's helpful in shepherding our hearts as well as caring for others. And then you see this year we've included uh, the memory verse that your children over in Wellspring Kids um, will have, the older kids. Um, So when you get your homework out and you have children in those classes, it's a reminder to help them with their memory verse and Hey, go ahead and memorize it yourself if you'd like to. And if you, even if you don't have children over there, here's an opportunity for a memory verse to write God's word on your heart. Um, so, before you start your homework, it's really important to ask for God's help. Ask for his help. Pray and ask God to increase your heart's desire to know and love him. This is not, this homework is not meant to be academic. Um, It can be tempting to think that way, but it's not. Um, There may be questions um, on our homework to help us evaluate our lives in light of the Wellspring Disciplines. These questions are penetrating at times. They may even feel a little bit uncomfortable to answer at times. And our goal here is not to make you feel uncomfortable. Our goal is to help um, us apply what we're learning on a heart level. That's what we're getting at. It's not meant to be an academic assignment. So just hang in there. And if you don't know the answer to a question, you just don't even know how to answer it, that's totally okay. Don't answer it. Okay? Our homework um, will be turned in to the discussion group leaders. And, And that might even be a little bit uncomfortable and hard. You know, here you've like poured out your heart on your homework. And again, that isn't our goal to make you feel uncomfortable, but it will help um, your leader, uh, it will help her get to know you better, um, know how to encourage you, and uh, how to pray for you. So I encourage you to just persevere in that. You'll, you'll be encouraged when you get your homework back as well. There'll be encouraging comments on it, maybe scripture, um, and you'll know she's been praying. So the homework matters. We're evaluating ourselves for the purpose of seeing what God has done, where we need to grow, where he wants us to change in that progressive sanctification. And we want to be able to apply the truth of what Christ has done for us as we draw near to him, as we thank God for his grace, as we grow to be more like Jesus. In this particular homework, you'll see the due date. Well, you'll always have a due date on the top. Um... And uh, this one is due October 2nd, so not next week, but the following week. However, it might be really helpful to complete that first part, that looking back, right away. Do that maybe by this weekend while your memory's fresh, 
um, from the teaching. Don't wait till Wednesday night to do this. Um, it'll be harder to do. And then maybe try to um, do part of the looking day-by-day section. You know, get about half of that done, if you can, by next week. And start thinking or working on the looking ahead section. Just don't wait till the last minute. Okay? Um, and if you have any questions, let us know. But you do have two weeks to, to complete your homework. All right. Like Scott said, the primary assignment in Wellspring is to meet with God daily in his word. That's what we want to encourage one another to do. And in Wellspring, we do um, use a Bible reading plan to facilitate this. So you can turn uh, the page now. Um, And, you know, we want to get into, like he said, a discipline, a routine, a habit to do this for the rest of our lives. Um, my heart needs to be worshipfully, humbly engaged with God in his living. Hebrews 4.12 says it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. I need my heart to be engaged with God's living word. And um, I need his whole counsel. I need, it, I need his whole counsel in his word to be shaping my understanding. We need it to be shaping our thinking, our words, our choices, our obedience. Um, and we need to be doing that year after year. We need to, to be. We need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to know who He is, who we are, um, and what God has done to redeem sinners like us. Like, uh, like Scott said, also. Um, but it usually doesn't happen if we don't plan for it. It just doesn't. So it's good to plan. So this isn't about finishing a reading plan, really, in a year. That's not the goal. The goal is to meet with God daily, prayerfully, purposefully, worshipfully, regularly. So we're going to encourage you um, here to persevere and to keep going. And it can just be a battle, but we're going to encourage one another. Our aim, ladies, is to grow. Our aim is not perfection. That's heaven very important to understand that struggling with a reading plan is not a reason to quit wellspring okay that's not a reason don't give up we all struggle like scott said so keep coming let's encourage one another and um by the way if you're already in a reading plan just keep going if that's working for you that's totally fine we've given you several options in your notebook And um, I'll let you look at them a little bit more in detail on your own, but there's a chronological reading plan where you you can uh, read through the Bible in the order that it happened. But just, you know, you're going to be in the Old Testament for a really, 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 really long time. (laughs) But if that's what you want to do, that's great. Um, There's the form uh, in here that he talked about. And uh, make your own plan and then evaluate and then, you know, make another plan. It's in here somewhere. And then there's a 52-week plan. Um, You need some flexibility in your time with that because sometimes you're in six or seven chapters a day. There's a McShane Bible reading plan. You're in four chapters a day. Um, You read through through the New Testament and the Old, or the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs twice in a year through that one. There's an Old and New Testament plan, and uh, that's just reading through uh, the Old and New in a year. There's a discipleship journal plan where you're always in the Old and New Testament. Um, but you, and, you, and that plan gives you 25 days, so you have a little cushion in there if uh, you miss some days. There's also a Blue Letter Bible two-year plan. 
if this is a season where you just know I am not going to set myself up for failure, I'm going to, you know, do the two-year plan. And if you get ahead, hey, get ahead. But that may be the one that you do. Um, and that's, you're in, there's no dates on that plan too, which is kind of cool. You just check it off and you're not like married to the date. Uh, but pick the one you like. Um, you cut it out, put it in your notebook, use it as a bookmark. Um, and, and there are also online resources, uh, apps. If you use an iPad, there are a lot of apps that are helpful. Um, but and if you're not sure which, which one to pick, talk to someone in your uh, discussion group next week. So your first assignment is to pick a plan and get started by October 1st. Um, let's see. We've also included some other resources, and we can talk about them another time. But look at them. Heart, um, just uh, resources where we have uh, we have here so many places in Scripture where God mentions the heart. Go uh, if you have some extra time, read through this. Open up God's Word and see just how much. He talks about the heart. So they're very helpful resources. Um, and we might give you some more resources throughout the year. And while we're talking about resources, here is another great resource. For those of you who, who do not have one, we highly recommend you getting a gospel primer. It will. Ha- we talk about like shepherding your heart with the gospel and you know preaching the gospel to yourself. Um, this is a great book to... Uh, Grow in our understanding of how what Christ has done um, for us applies to our daily living. The power of the gospel in our life. When I know I'm struggling with pride, I get this out because there's there's scripture references of what God's word says about humility and trials, and I love it because they're short and you get the you get the scripture on the bottom and just super impactful. They're eight dollars. They're at the book table, so see one of us. Um, at the end of uh, the morning, if you would like one. I just mentioned to you that if, if you do decide to go through the chronological plan, mm-hmm. that's a great convenience. It is. Because it, even though you're in the Old Testament for such a long time, it keeps the gospel set. It does. It's a great So helpful. And that's how I got through the chronological <laughs> reading plan a couple of years ago. That's just, that's honesty. Um, all right, so after our teaching time, we're going to have a discussion group. We'll discuss our homework. We'll get to know one another better. We'll build relationships. We're going to pray for one another. Um, each group will have a leader and a co-leader. Um, she's going to lead the discussion, collect your assignments, encourage the group to be praying for one another. But caring for one another is a group effort. It takes all of us. It's just not the leader's responsibility. We're a body. So let's reach out to one another and care for one another, exchange phone numbers and and all of that. So the components of Wellspringer, when we're together, there will be fellowship and there will be worship and teaching from God's word about the disciplines and we'll have discussion group. And then on your own, there's a reading plan to pick by October 1st, other homework assignments, and then praying and encouraging one another. I hope you're excited about the year before you. If you have any questions, please uh, talk to one of us. I'm, I can only imagine you feel like you did just get hit really <laughs> with a fire hose, but hang in there. Everything's going to just, you know, we'll take it a little bit slower um, the weeks to come, kind of. Uh, we pray <laughs> that you um, are strengthened through Wellspring 
and that you are, when you leave here, that you are encouraged to worship God in his word and with your life um, and make much of Jesus. And um, we, we have, uh, we're sent ones to display and talk about the power of the gospel in our lives. And so we're here to encourage and, and help um, strengthen uh, just that. Let's pray. Father, um, we do praise you. We thank you for what um, what you have done through the work, finished work of the gospel. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you, Lord, that the only reason that we could love one another is because you've loved us. And so, Lord, we commit this ministry to you. We pray, Lord, that you would um, work mightily in our lives to be uh, transformed more and more into the image of your Son. And, Lord, that that would be all for your glory. Um, We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.